0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan. Joining me today is Corey Howitt.
1: Corey, how's it going? Doing well. Excited to finish the fourth book of the Bible. If you guys have been listening, I love Numbers, which is weird for a lot of people, I'm sure. I think I mentioned in the last episode, this is my favorite section of Numbers The section last week was kind of the crux of the whole book, and at least for me, in what I've gotten from the book of Numbers as I continue to read and reread, these four chapters that we went over last time, chapters 22 through 25, really help us get an idea of the main idea of the book of Numbers and God's character. Anyways, before I preach a sermon here, let's go ahead and look at we went through last week very briefly. Chapter 22, we get this new character introduced named Balaam. And Balaam is this gnarly, like, wizard, necromancer, sorcerer, witch doctor character. And Balaam is hired by Balak. And Balak is a king of one of the enemies of the people of Israel. And he says, go and curse the people of Israel for me because I see that They have a mighty God with them, and wherever they go, they're laying waste to people. So out of fear, King Balak hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. And this is the one story that most people know about the book of Numbers. Balaam's talking donkey is given the ability to talk by God to make sure Balaam's heart is in the right place, that he's really only going to say the things that God says. Balaam goes and he looks over the people of Israel camped down below. Balaam's up in the hills, and although he's hired to curse, he cannot help but bless the people. And we talked about this last week. While Balaam seems like a really awesome character for being on Team Israel, it's not really that he's on Team Israel, that he's really on God's side. It's that God used him as a mouthpiece to proclaim blessings rather than curses, because if it was by his own power— If God had not intervened, it seemed like Balaam would have just went on and cursed these people. And maybe it would have had no effect at all. God could have easily thwarted it. But this is the way that God chose to thwart Balak's desire to curse Israel. And we also talked about that this is really significant and important because in every chapter up to this point, just about, Israel has been just disobeying God in some amazingly creative ways i I don't know if that's silver lining to say that they're creative in disobedience i think that's maybe more of a knock against them however it's just looking really bad so we see god stand in the gap and in the way of curses coming upon israel meanwhile god is just receiving heaps and heaps of curses from israel so in the midst of israelites disobeying god and living in sin we see god's character in that god still chooses to protect his people to show love for his people and we see as well as blessings in general that balaam gives for the people of israel balaam also gives some really heavy messianic promises promises of jesus He talks about this king to come who's like a bright morning star, this king who is among the people of Israel, where he says things like, I can see him, but not now, meaning that the king is not there yet. The star of Jacob is not there yet. He was also quoting the messianic blessings from Genesis chapter 49 that Jacob gave to the tribe of Judah. So just really cool things that God chose to do through a sinful, corrupt subject. And we ended off with Israel just committing a terrible sin. So after chapters 22 through 24, Balaam cannot help to bless the people because of God. God did all these things for Israel. But the next, very next chapter, chapter 25, Israel goes back to sinning with cheating on God with other gods, the Baals of Peor, and we will see later on in this episode when we get down to, I think, chapter 31, that Balaam has a part to blame in that great atrocious sin. However, really cool chapter, really cool to see the character of God standing in the gap for his sinful people, and now we are really turning gears here into chapter 26, Great recap. Thank you
0: for that, Corey. So jumping then into today. So today we have a big task ahead of us. We are going to try to cover chapters 26 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 36. And so with that, you may hear us kind of summarizing chapters and maybe skipping over a few sections What I would encourage you guys to do with regard to that is go back and read through these chapters on your own. Again, the idea of this podcast is not to give you strictly Dylan and Corey's thought process on the Bible and for you guys to take that as gospel, but instead to encourage you guys to read the Bible for yourselves and to read it as a story. So along those lines, if we do kind of just summarize something, go back, read it, make sure that you understand it. So, Again, like Corey just said, leaving off at the end of chapter 25, we had this huge sin where Israel yet again fails. Again, I've postulated that maybe the book of Numbers should be renamed to the book of rebellion. It's basically just one big narrative about how Israel fails consistently, but they fail. They follow after this other God, Baal, and they go with the Moabites and stuff like this. And so then running into chapter 26, immediately after that narrative, we have the second census. And so remember all the way back at the beginning of the book, we had an original census where Moses counted the people. And now here is the second one. Corey had an interesting thought on this that he wanted to share. So I will let him go ahead and do that.
1: Yeah, one of my thoughts for the census numbers, every time I read through numbers and I get To this point, I always compare the numbers of each tribe in chapter 26 with chapter 1. And I'm wondering if this is a clue to show us which tribes were walking rightly with God and which tribes were creating a lot of quarreling and rebelling among the people to where they experience those different types of wrath that we've seen throughout the book. Different plagues, different, I don't know, just random acts of god like opening up the earth to swallow people and so i mean for example i think we see tribes like judah do well and we see other tribes tribes that were talked about doing not so good things throughout the books like oh man they really have gotten smaller in number i think ephraim is one of those tribes so that's just an idea Not that it's super important to memorize the numbers of these things, but I'm wondering if that is the purpose at all. And it may be, and maybe that's something helpful, but it might not be. However, what we do want to pull out of this chapter, besides that possible reason for the numbering being there, is the last three verses of chapter 26. It says, these were those listed by Moses and Eliezer, the priest's who listed the people of Israel on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron, the priest. That is the very first census that we're referring to in chapter one. For Yahweh said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except, remember, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun the two spies that had faith in God and and believed that God would deliver the land into their hands. And so the only three remaining from that beginning of this book, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, but only Joshua and Caleb will reach into the land. And that brings us to chapter 27. Pretty interesting story here. We have these daughters of a man named Zelophehad. And Zelophehad is a man who died in the wilderness. And these girls, as they tell Moses their story, he didn't die in any of those major upheavals, but he just died in the wilderness for his own sins, was their own words, but he had no sons. And so because Zelophehad had no sons, his five daughters... Would no longer have an inheritance. So say, hey, can we have an inheritance? Moses talks to Yahweh, which is a really good thing. Whenever we see a character go bringing a case before Yahweh or inquiring of Yahweh when they don't know something, that's something that's really good of a character. So it's awesome that Moses is doing that and that he's still doing that even though he messed up a few chapters back. And so God says, yeah, this is a, a good thing to ask. And he shall go ahead and give the inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan. And in this case, the daughters will be able to take this land and then they will marry and have kids and it will just be like, you know, nothing happened. And there there'll be something more to say in this case at the end of the book. Right now it's a good place to stop in details. What do you think, Dylan?
0: Yeah, I think so, because like Corey said, we're going to come back to them at the end of the book in chapter 36. So let's go ahead and put a pin in that story for now and then move on through. We're going to get to the end of chapter 27, and something very important is going to happen. We've already seen that Moses, even Moses, along with the rest of the Israelites, has failed, He has rebelled against God, and as a direct result of that, it is said that he is not going to get to enter the promised land. And so now the question is, okay, the people are supposedly still going to enter the promised land, but the previous generation that died off in the wilderness that we just talked about in chapter 26, as well as Moses himself, they're not going to get to enter. It's going to be the next generation, and they need a new leader. Who's that going to be? And so that is the question that this seeks to answer. And it turns out that this person who is going to do this is none other than a man named Yehoshua, Joshua. So Joshua gets to be the next leader. And so in verse 17, we have the question, who shall go before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them and bring them in that the congregation of Yahweh may not be sheep that have no shepherd? So. The answer to that is the shepherd is going to be Joshua, who interestingly enough, his name in Hebrew literally means salvation, which is why I said it in Hebrew in the first place. It's just a really interesting connection that we're going to actually see continually throughout the Old Testament, this idea all the way into the New Testament when we have another guy named Yehoshua who comes and saves the people. But that's for another time. And so Joshua, the son of Nun, comes and he is filled by the Spirit. He is a man who is filled by the Spirit. They come, they elect him, they lay their hands on him, and he gets appointed as the next leader. The guy is going to actually bring them into the promised land. Corey, did you have anything else to say about that before we move on?
1: It's just interesting the way that they talk about someone leading the people. They talk about it in this interesting phrase, to go out and to come in before the people. And that just is a Hebrew idiom. And it gives light to something like what Solomon says in his dream in 1 Kings chapter 3. He has this dream and God's talking to him and he says, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. He's king. He's like, I don't really know how to rule the people. But he doesn't say it in that way. He uses this idiom that kind of starts here. I think we've seen it a couple times earlier than this. So it's just kind of cool to get to understand the Hebrew idiom so when we see him again, we're not left scratching our heads like what do you mean? You don't know how to pass through doors like you do not have door handles. So all of that to say is um, Joshua is the man who's going to be given this wisdom from God just as Solomon, Almost was given that wisdom from God as he asked for it. And that, I guess, too, it's just cool to see that Joshua's in this verse, chapter 27, verse 18, it talks about him having the spirit. And back in chapter 14, verse 24, it said, Caleb is a man who has a different spirit than the other spies. It's like, whoa, how come only Caleb? Well, here, Joshua's shouted out for having the spirit the different spirit of the fearful men, but the right spirit, the spirit of God, which is pretty cool. And going on from there, we're going to look into the different offerings that God has the people make. I always forget how many offerings the priests and the people had to make. For example, every single day, there's daily offerings. You offer two lambs every day, one in the morning, one in the evening. And with those two lambs, you give a grain offering. And this grain offering has, you know, these certain measurements like one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour and mixed with a quarter of a hin of beaten oil. And you see that God talks about this as a burnt offering and a food offering. And it's drink offering shall so be a quarter hin for each lamb. So I was like, okay, I remember these things from Leviticus. And if we don't remember, it's like, oh, I can go back there and look at the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and what they're for. But like in addition to every single day, every Sabbath, they give two lambs. With those two lambs, with the additional two lambs, so we got four lambs going on. But with the Sabbath offering, those two male lambs, there's a greater amount of flour given. Okay, you got the regular burnt offering and the drink offering and the Sabbath offering. That's a lot. So two every day, but on a Sabbath day, four. And then every month at the beginning of the month, you give two bulls, a ram, and seven lambs. And the amount of flour given is more for a ram than the lambs. And it's a lot for the bulls as well. So it's just really starting to add up, and not to mention the different offerings and feasts. For example, the Passover is seven days where you eat unleavened bread. And with each day, there's an offering of it. The Feast of Weeks, the same thing as you get in the chapter 29, the Feast of Trumpets, and it gets really heavy with the Feast of Booths. I'm skipping over the Day of Atonement, but the Feast of Booths, for seven days there's this feast. The first day, you start with 13 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs. The second day, you go down to 12 bulls, but still two rams and 14 lambs, and you keep Going down by the seventh day, you get down to seven bulls, but still two rams and 14 lambs. And while we talked about in our Leviticus episode that these feasts are are really good, and it's really cool that God makes his people celebrate him. However, we look at this like, wow, this is just so burdensome. Like, this is such a a tall order. There's so many animals being killed. It's it's a great reminder, like, man, our, our sin is really gnarly. I should not enjoy sin. I should not want to sing. Look at all the death that it brings. I mean, thank God that it's not me and my family and my friends, my people. But this is still really hard to swallow. So we see in, in this covenant, although in Leviticus, we also talked about how it's affordable. God makes affordable sacrifices. So if you're poor, you don't need to bring a ram. You can bring a dove or a pigeon, which is cool. However, this is still a lot of sacrifices, a lot of death, a lot of money. And of course, God is worth it. But man, how great and restful it will be when the Messiah comes, who brings an end to the killing of animals. However, we know that this Messiah is going to die himself, which is going to be terrible. But man, he's going to bring rest to our daily lives. Because right now, everyone needs to plan around these feasts, these Sabbaths, these daily offerings. Man, that be is so amazingly restful when Messiah comes. So these things point forward to Christ. But we also talked about, um, I think in Leviticus, but as, as we look at the end of chapter 29, it talks about these are the offerings that you shall make at the appointed feasts. This same word for appointed feasts back in Genesis, this Hebrew word moed, it can also mean stuff like meeting, like the tent of meeting, or it can talk about appointed times or appointed seasons. Like in Genesis one fourteen, God put the sun, the moon, the stars in the place so that we would know the moed, the appointed feasts he has for us, which I think is a really good translation because that's the clearest thing that relates back to the Moed and Genesis 1 is the appointed feasts in Leviticus and then mentioned again in Numbers. So, that's just a whole lot of different types of offerings to go ahead and look through. But again, we're going to try and make it all the way to chapter 36. So, let's keep moving. Unless, Dylan, you have anything to say on that? No, nothing else to say on chapter 28 and
0: 29. Again, it is a recap of stuff that we already have gone over. So I would encourage you to go back and read through those again for yourself. The idea of pointing out appointed times is definitely important. And so I'm glad Corey did that because it was on my mind as well. Jumping into chapter 30, then we have this section kind of continuing the thought of 28, 29, the idea of... These are the offerings. These are the appointed times, the festivals. And now also with vows, we have this whole section talking about how it is appropriate to take a vow, when it's appropriate to take a vow, when it's not appropriate to take a vow. And also, interestingly, we have kind of this connection all the way back to Genesis and the Created Order idea between what it means to be husband and wife, male and female. If they take a vow that their husband or father annul says, no, you can't do that. Then the vow is actually non-binding. However, If the female takes a vow and the husband or father does not say anything about it, then the vow stands. So it's really an interesting idea, plays off of things that have already come up in Genesis. And this idea will come up again throughout the Old Testament, as well as into the New Testament. And we'll probably touch on that a little bit later. But for the sake of time, we're going to keep rolling. Chapter 31 is kind of one of the bigger chapters in this section that really continues the narrative that we have been tracing up until this point. So remember at the beginning of this episode, uh, we pointed out that chapter 25, that was the last time we had kind of seen the narrative in play where the people failed. They sinned in Moab with the Midianites and they worshiped another god. And we had this figure that was brought up in 24 as well as in 25 named Balaam. And this guy Balaam, like Corey pointed out at the beginning, he was utilized by God to bless the Israelites, but he was not a good guy. He was not a good character. Just because someone is utilized by God does not make that character de facto good. Instead, Balaam is shown to be a negative character. And so in chapter 31, what we see is we actually see the repercussions of Israel's sin with the Midianites. And so here, God actually commands Moses to take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So again, remember, Moses is going to die. We already know this. He's not going to be able to enter the promised land. So the last task he's really charged with is... Go take vengeance on the Midianites, and so he does that. They go and they fight against the Midianites, they kill all of them, or at least that's what they're commanded to do. And so they kill a bunch of them. Among the victims was Balaam, son of Beor, they killed him with the sword. And so, this is the judgment now on Balaam himself. So, even though God utilized this character to bless the people, again, he Uh, chapter 31 suggests it played an integral role in the sin that Israel committed with the Midianites. And therefore, he was judged as a result of that. He was killed with the sword. And so following down into the narrative in verse 15, we get at this interesting point. So all of the men get killed, all of the Midianite men. But remember, in chapter 25, one of the most egregious sins that the narrative recounts is when an Israelite trumps through the camp right in front of Moses with the Midianite woman, right? And so in verse 15, the, the question is asked, have you allowed the women to live? Like, this should be a total destruction. We already established that at the beginning of the chapter. So they, the women, were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to Yahweh in the Peor incident, so that a plague struck Yahweh's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man. And so basically the idea is go and kill the women as well, because they are also enticing the people to follow after other gods. And so that is really kind of this interesting thing where we get kind of what we would see as a grotesque image, this kill everybody. Oh, that makes us bristle. But the idea again is these people have made God's people follow after other gods besides Yahweh, which is ultimately resulting in the people's death and resulting, I mean, that's the chief end of sin, where people follow after anything but Yahweh. And so, kill them off as a result. Corey, did you have anything else to say about chapter 31?
1: No, that's good. I mean, again, it's just, you know, interesting to see that Balaam is killed. And I've always was so confused by that, but, you know, somehow he was really a part of bringing Israel to sin somehow. And I've always wondered, like, as Balaam was doing his different oracles, he had different altars made, which weren't weren't to Yahweh. These are pagan altars he had made. So I wondered if it was because of the altars he made, because he made altars to Baal at Peor, which is the place they sinned in 25. And that's not a super close connection. But in some way, he did bring about some falling of the people Somehow, where, you know, Moses explained this in verses 15 through 20, and you know, as Dylan just kind of mentioned, so somehow he he advised this treachery. We're not given exact details, so I just kind of give him my, well, I wonder if this was, and so that's just my little wonder if moment. And so going into chapter 32, we have Gad and Reuben wanting to settle in Gilead and the half tribe of Manasseh so the way that the land allotments are going to work out half of Manasseh will be beyond the Jordan separated from the rest of Israel and so they get to you know these boundaries of the lands where some of these tribes will get the opportunity to sit down and dwell there but Moses is just dumbfounded and the fact that they would even ask that hey can we Sit here and, and let our livestock and our servants live here. If we found favor in your sight, let it be given this for our possession. This is in verse five. It says, Don't even take us across the Jordan. So th- this is a big deal. Don't take us across the Jordan. We're, we're here in the land that belongs to our tribe. If we have favor in your sight, let us just remain here. And uh, <laughs> Moses is not happy. Moses is pissed at the people. And he starts bringing about the stories of how Yahweh was angry with their fathers as they were wandering in the wilderness because their egregious sins that they wandered for 40 years. We know that this is only like a two-week journey. You guys are wandering for 40 years because of your hard-hearted, hard-headed disobedience. And now you guys are going to ask a similar type of thing. Essentially, he's saying it's like verse 13. He says, you know, you guys are like this type of thing that, you know, God made you guys wander for 40 years. Verse 14, he says, behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of Yahweh against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness. And you will destroy all this people. So, you guys, Moses is saying, your disobedience is going to bring upon destruction of all the people. Don't do it. And so they say, whoa, well, well, okay, what if we just build some stuff for our livestock and our young ones here? Can they stay here? But the ones who will truly be useful for conquering the land, we will go. And, and this seems like a good thing, but Moses being wary, you know, says, all right, well, I'm going to hold you to this, right? You, you better come until all of this land is subdued. Only then, once you feel this obligation, come back and settle in this land here. And so, yeah, some really shady stuff happening on account of the Israelites' Here at least, Gad, Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh.
0: They want to stay outside of the Promised Land. That's really the big crux of that matter. We've seen up until this point that the whole goal that we're going for now is to get into the Promised Land. So the ultimate takeaway from this is that this is probably a bad desire that they have. We don't want to go. So when Moses is pissed, we can conclude that's probably... A righteous indignation, Moses being frustrated at them. It's probably not Moses being out of line here. This is probably not a good thing. So moving now into chapter 33 is super interesting. It recounts Israel's journey that they've undertaken so far. And we're not going to go through this whole thing. So again, like I said, Go ahead and go back and redo this yourself. We have already in the podcast gone through these exploits. This is simply a recounting of what we've already talked about. But something that is really important to point out is towards the end of chapter 33, and that is starting from verse 50 and on, which I'm actually just going to read, and then we can talk about a little bit. And so in chapter 50, it says, On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all of the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all of their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all of the high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess." Distribute the land by lot according to your clans to a large group. Give a larger inheritance into a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. Very graphic images there. They will give you trouble in the land where you live. And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. And so this is a really important section in a few respects. First off, it points out that they are going to cross into the the promised land. When they do that, their goal is to get rid of everything that is not worshiping Yahweh. And so the destruction of the inhabitants of the land is in line with this idea. Destroy everything that is not worshiping Yahweh so that you— will be a holy people. Again, the entire point of Leviticus we discussed was to the the point that God is holy, so he's calling his people to be holy. That is, they are to be set apart, different. They are for or devoted to Yahweh and his worship, and therefore God, being a jealous God, wants everything that is devoted to anything other than him destroyed when they enter the promised land. So that is the idea there. Another thing that's interesting is we have a a retelling of the covenant that we've already seen. So we got the covenant to Abraham. That covenant is consistently passed on to all of his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. uh, And it's repeated in Genesis a bunch of times. And now we have it repeated again, the idea that God is going to give them this land to possess. That's part of the covenant, and it's repeated yet again. But along the lines of when this covenant has been given in the past— Every time the covenant is given since Sinai, it comes with stipulations. The stipulations are, if you do the things I command you, you will receive the blessings of the covenant. If, however, you do not do the things I command you, you will receive these various curses. One such curse that is explained here is, you must destroy the people of the land. If you do not destroy the people of the land, I will do to you what I plan to do to them. That is total destruction. And so God is not playing any games here. He's not saying, I am happy to be one of the many that you worship. Instead, it's me or it's nothing. I'm either going to be for you and you for me, or I will be against you. So that's the idea that uh, is getting communicated here. And it's really important because we are going to see in Deuteronomy and then finally into Samuel and Kings, the people just, they, they don't do that. The, the words echo in my head every time I read through the Old Testament. We will do everything that Yahweh says. They said that in Exodus, and just it never happens. And even Moses points out, you're not going to do this. You're going to get the curses, but God's still going to be merciful. So still an interesting point. So after this, we get into chapter 34. And chapter 34 is an interesting one. We're probably not going to spend much time on it. But the idea is that it kind of cuts off or designates the boundaries of what the promised land is is. So this is what is in the promised land. This is what the promised land is. This is where it's at. One thing we pointed out that we were discussing at the beginning of the podcast is a scholar by the name of John Sailhammer, who both Corey and I respect. Uh, he points out in one of his books that basically the promised land has been in view of this entire time, all the way from Genesis, even in 1, 2, and 3, the idea of where Eden is, the imagery and the location, the geographical features that are described there, gives you the impression that what the author has in mind is Canaan, actually. And so even in Eden, it's placed in a certain sense in Canaan, and so the idea is get back to Eden. And so what God is doing here with Israel is he's creating for himself a new people to be representative of a new humanity that will succeed where Adam failed. And he's putting them into a new Eden so that all of the rest of the world can be brought to God. The ideal is that they are going to be a nation of priests, which we already see that they failed at. They are a nation that was supposed to be a nation of priests, but now they're a nation with priests. But the ideal is you are going to be a nation of priests, and you are going to act as priests to the rest of the world to bring them to me in my presence. That's the ideal, the goal here. And we see already the people failing at that goal. And so we're going to consistently see the people fail at that goal. Like Corey already said, we need something else. We need a Messiah who's going to come and is going to fix this because these people who are even being set up as priests, they don't do it. They fail just like the first Adam did. And so we need something else.
1: Corey, do you have anything
0: else on uh, 33, 34?
1: Yeah, just at the second half of chapter 34, small detail as you read closely, it talks about all the different tribes and it lists the different chiefs of each tribe. However, The tribes of Gad and Reuben are left out because we were already introduced to those tribes and leaders back in chapter 32 when they had their really boneheaded request. That was really selfish. And so, I mean, we already know their land allotment as well. Um, We're still given Manasseh because, you know, Manasseh does not have all of his land yet. And Levi is also left out. And Levi, if you remember... Is not going to get a land inheritance. This goes back to the curse that Jacob gives his son, Levi, because Levi tricked the town of Shechem along with his brother, Simeon. But Levi gets this curse that you, you will not have a land inheritance of your own. But God turns that, you know, twisted tribe of Levi to something really good. They are his servants who serve in his tabernacle. And so going in chapter 35, like I was saying, they get these different cities listed to where they will have cities to rest and to dwell in throughout all of Israel. So they're like, you know, this. the idea is like this is perfect chocolate chip cookie. The chocolate chips are perfectly sprinkled all the way through. And these are the Levites within all of the camp. Um, they're kind of like this salt for all of the tribes of Israel scattered nicely. Um, and they are given 48 cities. So within chapter 35, we see that there's it says there's 42 cities throughout all of Israel, which there will be given. And then there'll be six cities of refuge, of which the Levites are also in charge of those cities of refuge. So 48 in total but the cities of refuge is something important to talk about for just a second the city of refuge is for those who maybe accidentally kill someone else like let's say you're working with an axe with a loose head and you're trying to chop a tree and you go on a backswing and the head flies off and accidentally kills someone well the family members of that killed person might think you did it on purpose and want revenge right away or they don't care your intentions they just want revenge So anyone who accidentally killed someone can go to a city of refuge that they may escape the anger of someone who wants vengeance. So this is a, you know, a a cool rule, good foresight of God that unfortunately is built for unfortunate circumstances. So we'll hear us talk about with God's instructions, there is an ideal state. I mean, the ideal is that, like Dylan just said, a big picture goals that God is leading the people back to a new eating of the new humanity who will rightly serve him. But that doesn't happen, right? We have this fallen people and sometimes not even with bad intent, accidents happen. So good rule for unfortunate circumstances in both the killing and the anger that desires revenge without allowing an answer. So the We see God just with tons of understanding for people, not only in their accidents, but also in people's just anger and misunderstanding and sometimes not even wanting to understand someone who did wrong. The end of the cities of the Levites and the Avenger and the Manslayer, all sorts of fun stuff in chapter 35. I like the way that chapter 35 words it, though. It gets... I don't know, kinda dramatic, I feel like. Again, read it, that's a really quick recap. And now to the very last chapter, chapter thirty-six. And we're making good time. I'm I'm impressed with us, Dylan. Guessing we could spend like an hour preaching on chapter thirty-six now, since we did so good so far. Only slightly facetious there, guys. So anyways, we're getting back to land rights. So we've been talking about land rights a lot from, you know, the very beginning of this section chapter 26 talked about land rights the daughters of Zelophehad and then, you know, the different boundaries and all that. Chapter 36 we're ending with land rights dealing with the daughters of Zelophehad again. And so the daughters of Zelophehad, remember they're from the tribe of Manasseh. So now we already had the Women come up to Moses to make a plea. Now, the men of that tribe come up with some concern. And their concern is that the daughters of Zelophehad would marry men from other tribes. So, for example, if a daughter of Zelophehad, a daughter of Manasseh, who has this land inheritance just given to them in their father's place, and they go and marry someone from the tribe of Reuben, well, that man, say they live on that land, well, he can then take that property and say, "Well, this is now part of Reuben's inheritance." And when the year Jubilee comes, that bit of land can always go back to the tribe of Reuben. And so if things like this continue to happen, one tribe can become smaller and smaller, while another tribe becomes greater and greater. And we can even see things like we see in movies, or even, I guess, in real life things that movies are based on um is political marriages it's like well let's try and get our land allotment a little bit bigger and maybe let's go ahead and kill the man who only has daughters so far like you know just intrigue and interesting stuff that people of this fallen earth do and so that's uh, like yeah no that's that's really good good thought but let's go ahead and keep our marriages, Moses says, keep your marriages within the clan of the tribe of their father. This way, all this evil, and maybe not even just evil, just, you know, you marry who you want, but your tribe will suffer for it. And so think about your tribe. Um, Really interesting line in verse six, what Yahweh commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. He says, let them marry who they think best. And in the Hebrew, literally it's, Marry someone who's good in your eyes, so you know just interesting to see how that phrase is littered throughout the Torah and then we'll see throughout the rest of scriptures as well. but here God says, you know it's a good thing to marry whom you think is good in your eyes. And of course, there's a, a bunch with that, whoa, well, who we should marry with wisdom in God's eyes and all that, but that that phrase often gets softened. Um, by some translators and in this case it doesn't seem like an evil thing like we've talked about in other instances um, but yeah so truly marry who you think is good in your eyes but only marry within your clan and so I'm um, really cool the daughters of had do that and they marry people within their own clan in verses 10 through 12. Anything else uh, that you want to add to the dollars of Zalofa had in this whole situation, Dylan.
0: Yeah, there is one thing I want to point out, and it was kind of a conversation that Corey and I were having at the kind of pre-podcast planning stage, and that has to do with this idea that some people get this impression that anytime a problem comes up and they kind of adjust or make amendments or uh, add to various laws, it's kind of the people's way of showing that maybe this law wasn't actually divine or from God, or maybe, maybe the people made a law, they don't really understand it, and so they're confused, and so they adjust it, or something like this. To which I would like to offer the following. I'd like to say that that is absolute rubbish, and that instead what we're seeing in these adjustments or any op- time where we see kind of, okay, here's the black and white. The law says... A or B, but a situation arises where neither A or B really fits, that's just normal life. That happens all the time. But what we've been seeing all the way back from the beginning in Genesis is that the major conflict of the Bible is ultimately whose wisdom are you going to choose? Are you going to choose God's wisdom or are you going to choose your own wisdom? And so that's the conflict that goes throughout the entire thing. And so we pointed out that word Torah, for instance, referring to the first five books of the Bible. It's not best translated as the word in English law. Instead, it's better translated as the word instruction because that's exactly what it is. It's instruction leading to godly wisdom. And godly wisdom isn't necessarily God telling you this is what to do all the time in every circumstance forever. But instead, God instructing his people, his children, in a way such that when a situation arises that wasn't directly addressed by a given law, his people can then make an informed decision on what would be wise in that circumstance according to godly wisdom. If they follow God's instructions well, they will be able to apply God's instruction to their lives in any circumstance or any situation. And so, I mean, it's just like what any parent does. When they give their child instruction, the goal isn't— child, always do it this way or always do it that way, but instead, you want your child to think like you do so that when the child is met with a given situation, the child will make an informed decision. Same thing with God. That's exactly what he's trying to get his people to do in this circumstance, and that applies to the church as well, all the way into the New Testament. There's not a black and white for every single thing that could ever face the church, and so we often see ourselves asking the question, well, what do we do? And you could have four different answers, and then the question is, which of these answers is wrong? Well, provided they all fall in line with God's instructions that he's given, none of them are wrong. You are free to make any one of those four decisions and have it be morally correct according to God, and that's what he wants you to do. And so you're then given the freedom to make any of those four choices. Where where it becomes wrong is when you make a decision that's clearly not in line. God's instruction. And so I wanted to point that out because I think it's a good principle to really highlight a good shared truth that we can bring into our own lives when we are faced with decisions. The Bible isn't expressly a book of black and whites. Yes, it has black and whites in it. But more than that, the purpose of scripture is to draw you to Jesus and to help you to understand the mind of Christ so that you can be conformed to the mind of Christ, that you can make decisions with that mind. It's not so much a do all these rules, obey blindly or else sort of a book. That's not the goal at all. And so I wanted to point that out. And that's kind of our second to last point. Last point is going to be the last verse, uh, verse 13 of Numbers chapter 36, and how that is going to relate to what we're going to do next. So Corey, you want to talk about verse 13?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely by the way, great explanation of that. Yeah. I, I always was getting hung up by the dollars of Zalofahad story. But yeah, I, and I, you know, read the Bible and teach the Bible as though it's a story, but yet still I was like, wait, man, like what's, what's going on here? God could for sure give an all encompassing law, but he's working with a story. So like, it, it's just great to keep that in mind with All these different things. He's not looking for law to follow. He's looking to impart wisdom. He's giving us a story. So that was just so good. But, anyways, verse 13, the last verse of Numbers. These are the commandments and the rules that Yahweh commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And so this is where the story leads off. Kind of interesting, though. We we had just talked about Moses was given one last commission from Yahweh. And then he says, all right, do this one last thing. And then it'll be time for you to be buried with your fathers. However, we know that there's a whole book left, the book of Deuteronomy. So what what's that about? Did, is this last task like a really huge deal? Like, No, it's not. However, so look at verse 13. Look at where they are. They're in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan at Jericho. Now, you might need to turn a page in your Bible, but go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. And it says a similar phrase. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. However, the location is different. He's in the Araba, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel. Laban, Hazaroth, and Dishab-hab. Dizahab. That's a tough one to say. I think like, wait, what? They just described in the same place differently? I, I tend to think that um, going back to like chapter 33 of Numbers, it gives the route that they took and all the places they visited. And it seems as though that Deuteronomy is going back a little bit. And Moses had something to say back when they were in this location. I mean, in the book of Numbers, we see Israel get to Paran in, I think, chapter 12. It's when they leave Hazaroth and get to Haran. And then they go a whole lot more distance, maybe not in a straight line, I'm sure, lots of circles and zigzags. And they end up in the plains of Moab near Jericho. And so we're not going to actually see this story pick up Until Joshua. So if you guys can think of stories in the Bible, Joshua starts out with this battle at Jericho was one of the starts of it. I think it first starts out with a crossing of a Jordan River. Maybe my memory's off. We'll we'll cross that river when we get there. However, so we're we're seeing that Deuteronomy is gonna do one of those things where it's not gonna focus on continuing the story. So tune in to next episode to see how. Deuteronomy changes our trajectory. However, to wrap up Numbers, I have a a full wrap-up episode where we go over all of the book together. But Numbers is a epic. That's a genre of story. You know, like The Lord of the Rings, that's an epic. It's a travel log. Um, you start from the Shire and end up at Mount Doom. And then luckily back at Mount Shire. Not to spoil the story if you haven't read it, but if you haven't read it, then What are you waiting for? Get to it. Numbers is taking us on a journey. And the main thrust of the story is getting us by through traveling. Then along the way, we see, you know, the, the wheels fall off of God's people. And what we end with today in this section, we're talking a lot about the land. And like Dylan said, the really important thing about the land and a shared truth, that we learn from this place in scriptures not only is god faithful despite our disobedience that was really clear last week and we see here that god is faithful to his promise that promise of land in this case and we also saw kind of zooming in that in this case specifically god was trying to bring about a new people bring the people back to eden where they were supposed to be a nation of priests, just as Adam and Eve were to be like priests in the garden, to worship and obey there. And now the people are being led back to Eden, and there to serve God there. And we just hope that they will make it, and that we won't have more people like the tribes of Gad, Gad and Manasseh who have the ability to derail the whole operation, as Moses said. You guys can just end up being in this wilderness forever if you guys don't start following Yahweh and allowing him to lead you into the land. I don't think I have anything else to
0: add to the story. I think that is a good place to end it for the day. Like Corey said, we are going to be doing a numbers recap overview episode next. And then after that, we're going to be jumping into Deuteronomy. So tune in for that. With that, we'd like to thank you guys for tuning in today. Thank you for listening. We hope you guys are blessed by the podcast. If you are, you can do a few things for the podcast that will help it get into other people's hands so that they can be blessed by it as well. The number one thing you could do is leave a review wherever you listen. If you like the podcast, leave a five-star review. and That will help the algorithm to put it into more people's hands. Also, if you would like more information or to see some of our other resources, you can check out our website, www.thebibleisastory.com. You can also visit the Facebook page. That's just facebook.com. And our handle is Scripture Chronicles. And you can email us at scripturechronicles at gmail.com. That is the email address. And finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by logging onto the website, bibleisastory.com, and clicking on Donate. Guys, thank you so much once again for tuning into the show today. And with that, we bid you Shalom, hao
1: you
0: Guys.